Uh, I'm honored to be here. This is a great institution. I had, had the, got the uh, nickel tour today and was, was impressed by the people here as well as what they take care of. Uh, how many Korean War vets in the audience today? If at any time I say something you want to add to or disagree with, please uh, straighten me out. Uh, the, uh, what I want to try to do is I've got about, I'm using old technology today. I'm using uh, view graphs I'm not, uh, instead of PowerPoint. Uh, just, to, just, just to test to see how flexible you are intellectually. Uh, <laughs> also, I really want to try to go through about three hours worth of slides in about an hour to try to give you a lot of ideas about this war that, that has been often been called a forgotten war but should not be, especially for the U.S. Air Force. Because one of the points I want to make today is one of the Air Force's strengths throughout its history has been its ability to learn and adapt under fire which is the, the, when I did the Army Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Manual which for General Petraeus, the key tenet of that doctrine is learn and adapt. And the Air Force has been very well, done very well with that, though it has a tendency to forget that at the end of the war. Uh, in order to, uh, to really understand what happened in Korea in uh, 1950 to 1953, we got to start in the skies over Japan in 1945. And I want to start talking about Curtis LeMay's incendiary bombing campaign of Japanese cities. Here, these are B-29s near Mount Fuji. Uh, what LeMay's campaign will eventually do is destroy about oh, 180 square miles of Japanese cities, about 67 different areas, include mining, all their, their local the, the, the waters. Here's what one of the raids looked like at its heart. That's Osaka. That's what Osaka looked like while it was burning. And here's what Osaka looked like afterwards. It's the conclusion of the raid. It's uh, urban renewal at its best. And that's not the atomic bomb. That is just from one incendiary raid on, on, on Japan. When Henry Stimson was asked why he, dropped, why he approved the dropping the atomic bomb, one of his reasons was to stop the fire raids. Uh, now... That takes us to, hey, this is Curtis LeMay. This is 1948 when he is running the Berlin Airlift. A man of many talents, LeMay. Uh, my, probably my favorite airman. Uh, Carl Spotts thought he was the greatest air combat commander of World War II. And I think you can make a good argument for that. But the Air Force that he's in in 1948 has, has taken the lessons of World War II from this, this campaign that LeMay ran over Japan, as well as the campaign that Carl Spotts and others ran over Germany, and come up with the, the justification, the raison d'etre for the new independent U.S. Air Force for strategic bombing to destroy enemy nations, to win wars with strategic bombing. Uh, what you end up with is, is kind of a, a combination of the two schools, the European and the the Pacific School, you end up with a horizontal school of bombing and a vertical school of bombing. The, the vertical school of bombing said you take out individual target systems, ball bearings, oil, to take down an enemy state. The horizontal school, which is kind of the main method, is that, well, you just take out the cities because the cities contain all the key industry. Uh, but the bottom line is the reason for the Air Force is going to be strategic bombing to win wars. Uh, and, and nuclear weapons fit very well into this model. There's an interesting briefing I found in 1951 where an Air Force planner described Air Force strategy as precision attacks with area weapons. 
and kind of think about that for a while, uh, which is basically dropping nuclear bombs in enemy cities to take out all these key target systems. And LeMay, of course, is, is put in charge of Strategic Air Command and is in the process of turning that into the, uh, the really the, the elite fighting force that it that becomes. And he's responsible for it. Again, he's a terrific transformational leader turning organizations around. But the whole Air Force is going that way. You've got an Air Force that shrinks. From, from it goes from like two, maybe two million people about at the end of World War II to about 300,000 a couple of years later. It's, it, sinks, it shrinks down to 42 air groups. Uh, the only organization that's growing is SAC. About half of those air groups are Strategic Air Command air groups at this time. That's really going to be the, the main function for uh, the U.S. Air Force as it's seen. Uh, another key player in this transformation of the Air Force is the individual there on the on the on, on my on the left, which is Hoyt Vandenberg. Uh, on the right is George Stratemeyer, who command the Far East Air Forces. I'll talk about him in a minute. Vandenberg is the command of the Ninth Air Force in World War II, uh, tactical air force. Not only was he a great bureaucratic infighter in Washington, but he happened to have an uncle who was a key senator, uh, which helped a great deal. While the other services were really, uh, really hurting by 1950, Vandenberg at least been able to keep the Air Force in an even keel and build up Strategic Air Command. He does very well for his organization during that time period. The Air Force is going to be the key element in Harry Truman's defense policy, with, again, with its, its nuclear striking power. Uh, now, one of the key lessons of the Korean War is that you very rarely get the war you expect, the type of war you want to fight, in a location where you want to fight it. Uh, when I taught at West Point, I often told my cadets, I'd get on a board and I'd, I'd say, okay, where do you guys think we're going to fight the next war? You know, we'd, we'd put all the things down. And I'd say, okay, I guarantee you the next war will be somewhere else. The other thing we always say is, where would you like to fight a war? And you know, you very narrow list there. And I say, you also guarantee that you won't fight any wars there. Now, the places you fight are always very nasty places, as those of you who are veterans know that. Of course, when somebody's shooting at you, it always makes it a lot nastier. Uh, Korea, though, is uh, obviously a peninsula. The, uh, those of you who haven't been there, very mountainous. The uh, areas, you've got coastal areas where the, the roads and rails go. The rest of the area is pretty mountainous. It's just you're not going to be able to put anything there. It's mountainous. It's rice paddies. The main transportation route comes down across the Yalu, uh, down through Pyongyang, down through Seoul, and down to Pusan. And that's really the only major transportation route north and south. And a lot of the war is going to swing up and down around that. One key piece of terrain that really influences the war is the fact that the only improved airfields south of 38 parallel around Seoul. And for the jet aircraft that we're using in this first jet air war, you've got to have improved airfields. So whoever controls those airfields around Seoul, can, their, their jets can basically cover the whole peninsula. If you don't have those airfields around Seoul, it means you're either basing out of Manchuria, which is where the communist jets will base out of, or you've got to base out of Japan. So that's very key terrain when you're fighting an air war is who controls those airfields. Now, how many people have served in Korea out there? Okay, you, you, then you'll, you'll realize that when I say 
the, uh, there are three seasons in Korea. Summer, early winter, and late winter. And uh, trying to figure out the, the forecast and, and forecast weather in Korea is very difficult. This is a cartoon that was in one of the Air Force publications. You know, bottom line, it says, I don't care how accurate it is, get rid of it. I mean, that's basically what you try to do to tell weather in Korea. The part of the problem is the weather came out of the bad guy's territory. It's coming down out of Siberia, out of the Soviet Union, and they weren't sharing weather reports with us. So it made it a little difficult. But it, it, it was another taxing thing on airmen was to try to master uh, and try to work through that weather. The Far East Air Forces, under the command of this George Stratemeyer, who with his experience in World War II is in the China-Burma-India theater, uh, a lot of Far East Air experience, but his, his Far East Air Forces are designed for the air defense of Japan. For those of you who know the museum here, he's got uh, a few, he's got some F-80s, he's got some A-26s, he's got a lot of those F-82s, those twin Mustangs. Yeah, I got to talk about that. The first time I'd be able to see one in actuality today, so that, that was my kick of the day. Uh, but, but that's what he's got. He's designed to defend Japan, and all of a sudden, what's the first thing that the South Koreans asked for American air power. The first thing the South Koreans asked for is we need American air support. And, and the Americans would try to respond to it, but there's some problems. The first one is we kind of forgot how to do it. Things like interdiction, close air support, uh, those things weren't being taught at Air Force schools anymore. The Tactical Air Command had been disbanded. And actually, it had just become a subcommand under Continental Air Command. It wasn't even important anymore. Uh, you had a small group of Air Force officers who had kept the idea of tactical air power alive on their own. Uh, people like Elwood Pete Casada, Pete Casada, the, the famous close air support guru of World War II, had basically been forced out of the Air Force. He just basically had left in disgust because nobody appreciated what he had to offer. Uh, the, the skills just were not appreciated. That was not the kind of war the Air Force was going to fight. It was going to fight their strategic bombing war. It didn't have to do those skills anymore. Well, all of a sudden, the forces in, in the, uh, the Far East Air Force are going to have to redesign, reinvent, relearn all these different skills. Well, you've got some dilemmas involved in that. First one is let's talk about aircraft. The aircraft you've got to use are these F-80 shooting stars, which are interceptor aircraft. They are, again, the, the purpose of the Far East Air Force, Fifth Air Force at this time, is, is the air defense of Japan. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to tell these interceptor pilots, oh, by the way, you're now becoming, we're now going to make you close air support guys. Well, they, they, some problems with that. The first thing they find is, well, we've got to figure out some way to mount bombs on these things. So they, they fabricate on, the, on these F-80s, they fabricate some pylons, and they put bombs under the wings, and they find out the wings crack. That's not a good thing for aircraft. Any of you guys don't know that. So they've got to figure out how are we going to get, how are we going to turn these fighters into fighter bombers? And the other dilemma is because the, one of the first things we lose is the Seoul area, as the North Koreans come south, they're being based out of Japan because that's where the improved airfields are. So they have a very short loiter time when they do show up over the, over the area uh, to provide support. So the ground guys aren't real happy with the jet aircraft. What the ground guys prefer are aircraft like this. This is the F-51 Mustang. Now, 
As anybody knows who's seen the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, the ending of that movie is wrong, where a P-51 comes in and knocks out that German tank. What should that have been? What kind of aircraft should that have been? P-47. You're exactly right. And the guys in Korea realize that. The first thing they say is, okay, we need a real close air support aircraft. We need P-47. And what the headquarters Air Force says, great idea, don't have any. What we have are crated up P-51s left over from D-Day. And so what they do is they ship, they do that. They ship the, some of the aircraft that show up in Korea still have the D-Day wing markings on them. And that's what they're going to use. They're gonna, the, 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 the main close air support aircraft for the other part of Korea are F-51s. Now, the ground guys love the F-51s, kind of like they love the A-10 today, because they've got long loiter time. They can operate from, from unimproved airfields and right behind the front line. And the ground guys know they're not going to do anything else except close air support. Now, the Air Force doesn't like these because it's tough to maintain them because there aren't a lot of parts around. They're, they're, they're water-cooled engines, which means one bullet in the hydro, in, in the, and those things are going down. Uh, they can't fly the same number of sorties as the jets, and they can't do the multiple roles the jets can, can do. So the Air Force doesn't like these as much. They want to get back into the jet business. So there's, a real, there's going to be friction between the ground guys and the air guys throughout the war, really, about the type of aircraft that get used. Now... That situation is exacerbated by these guys. And that's when the Marines show up. Because the Marines show up, and of course, each Marine division has got 75 propeller-driven close air support aircraft dedicated to that division. And they also, of course, you know, typical, you know, Marine rifle squad is, is eight riflemen and two cameramen. Well, <laughs> in... And that, that's not actually that's not actually taking me derogatory. That's actually a positive because they also show up with a whole slew of, of reporters, and the reporters start writing all these articles about how the Army guys love Marine close air support and hate the Air Force, and which causes all kinds of stinks in Washington and and, and the, all kinds of reactions in the high headquarters, uh, at, at the, at Vandenberg and others. Uh, you know, the bottom line is the Marines don't have the artillery. They're equipped. They are supposed to work with the aircraft. The Army guys realize we don't have 75 airplanes to give to every Army division. But that doesn't keep guys like, like Ned Allman, who's up. He's here, uh, of course, the commander of the 10th Corps, MacArthur's chief of staff. Allman loves the Marine Corps style and, and doesn't keep a guy. Allman will battle with the Air Force to get that kind of support all the way through the Korean War until he's assigned the Army War College where one of the first things he does is write a textbook at the Army War College that tells all the things that are screwed up with the Air Force. I mean, real good joint, real good joint leader, Ned Allman. Uh, but it is, but it is, it is a point of friction about how close air support is going to be used. And again, remember the Air Force had kind of the Air Force was not the only people who forgot about it. The Army forgot about it too. So they're trying to develop close air support techniques on the fly in the middle of a war. That's not the best way to try to do it. Uh, so the bottom line is, it's not just the Air Force that's trying to relearn how to do this. Everyone is as well. And, of course, also in this mix is Curtis LeMay, who is, is ordered to send some of the SAC bombers in to reinforce the Far East Air Force. He says, fine, but if we're going to do this, we need to do a strategic air campaign just like Japan. I'm going to announce I'm going to burn down all the North Korea cities. Within two weeks, they don't give up, and that should end the war. And, and uh, MacArthur tells Rosie O'Donnell, who's who LeMay sends over to command the bombers, we don't fight that way. We're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to maintain. We're not going to go destroy North Korean cities at this stage. So what happens is, is eventually 
they're going to focus on a on a a, uh, a campaign very reminiscent of the European campaign, very much directed at strategic bombing of North Korean targets. And this is an example of a North Korean chemical plant. It's very accurate. It's very well done. And by the end of October, they've destroyed all the strategic targets in North Korea. And of course, by that time, they've also driven north. The North Koreans are on the run after Incheon, and everything is hunky-dory. And when the uh, people in Washington get word that a B-29 had spent its time chasing a North Korean motorcycle courier and dropping individual bombs after that courier, <laughs> they decided the B-29s were not being well used and they were going to bring them back. So in October, they get the order to stand down. Everything is fine. The war is won. And everybody's getting ready to go home. Okay. Pause. Then these guys show up. Didn't often see this kind of a viewpoint of a MiG-15. But November 1950, all of a sudden, out of Manchuria, MiG-15 show up. As we now know, they were piloted by Soviet pilots. Uh, but it was a complete surprise to the U.S. Air Force. Didn't expect them to show up. Not only, did we not, expect, we did not, not only did we not expect them to show up, we didn't know what the MiG-15 could do. And we were completely surprised by the capabilities of the aircraft. Uh, it, it immediately started shooting down B-29s, chasing away the F-80s. We didn't have anything in the, in the theater that could keep up with it. So the, the, the only way we could respond is by sending our own guys, to, our own F-86s, which was our new aircraft, to try to, to counter it. Now, what, what happens when the, the MiGs are based over here in Antung in, in Manchuria? They got a very short range, only 160-mile range. A very short-ranged aircraft to make. Very light, uh, not as robust as the F-86, which but it had a very powerful engine, which meant it was faster than the F-86. Uh, but this basically, when it comes into the war in November, it completely blinds our intelligence in this part of Korea, which is exactly the time when the North Koreans are pouring in to the country. So what happens is all of a sudden we don't have any eyes up here. They make this area basically a MiG alley untenable at that point in the war. And until we can get in our F-86s and somehow counter that, they basically, they have air superiority in that part of Korea. We lose air superiority at a very key time and a very key part of the, of the war. Now, an interesting thing that we find out as we go on is that if we try to get away from a MiG, all you do is fly out over the ocean, the MiG won't follow you. Now, why? Well, because the Russian pilots were told, don't get captured. We don't want anybody to know there are Russian pilots in the war. And they realized that if they got shot down over the ocean, the only people who were going to get them out there were going to be the U.S. Navy. So, if you, so when you were running away from me, you just headed for the ocean and they weren't going to follow you. But it does make for a very nasty air war in the northern part of Korea. Um, okay. Now, like I said, we respond. We send over F-86 Sabres. Uh, yeah. One of the first things with the, the, about the first 60 Sabres we had, we sold to Canada. And one of the first things that we do is tell the Canadians, ah, sorry, we didn't mean to do that. We take them back and we send them to Korea. <laughs> Canadians weren't real happy, but tough. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of them later. But the F-86s were the only aircraft we had that could compete with the MiG. Again, a little slower. Uh, the machine guns on the F-86s weren't as good in air combat as the cannons on the MiGs or the cannons on Navy aircraft. The Navy actually shoots down the first three MiGs before the Air Force gets one. But uh, 
they were, the pilots were very good, very aggressive, very well trained. And, and it, it's as much American training and skill that creates the edge the F-86s have as any kind of a technological edge. Though they are very robustly built uh, compared to the MiG. Uh, the, uh, the next thing that happens is MacArthur because of the MiGs coming in, the expansion of the air war, the fact that the Chinese are starting to show up, he goes to Stratomar and he says, what can you do to help me? And Stratomar says, well, we're going to expand the air campaign. And, what, and MacArthur goes to the Joint Chiefs and asks for permission to bomb the bridges over the Yalu. And the Joint Chiefs tell him, that's fine, but you can only bomb the southern half of the bridge. <laughs> now, the dilemma here is, you know, anyone who's seen the movie MacArthur knows he's got the scene where Gregory Preck goes ballistic about that order. Well, it, it was a stupid order. The problem is, is any, anybody who's bombed a bridge knows, which, if you're going to bomb a bridge, which way do you approach the bridge? You don't approach it edge on, because then your chances of hitting it are very small. You want to approach it this way. Where, you, where if, if your bomb goes short or long, it still hits the bridge. Well, the problem is you can't do that if you can't cross the middle of the river. And, and, and the communists aren't stupid. They, they put every, every anti-aircraft gun in, North, in, in Asia on the other side of the river across the bridge. So it creates a big, so it basically makes it very hard to hit those bridges. MacArthur also asked for the rights to chase into China, and then he doesn't get that either. So he's very frustrated when he sees his restrictions. Uh, the, the, of course, the bottom line, even if you're going to blow out the bridges, as it gets into wintertime, the river freezes over anyway. So the bridges aren't really that important. But there, is, there are a lot of issues with the command and control and what he can do. What, what MacArthur does do is he goes to Stratemeyer and he says, what can you do to keep the Chinese out? And Stratemeyer says, I can create a kill zone across North Korea and keep the Chinese from getting south of that line. Now, MacArthur had been served by George Kenney in World War II. Kenney is another great air commander. And every time George Kenney told Douglas MacArthur, I can do something, Kenney did it. So when MacArthur's airmen tell him, we can keep the Chinese out of most of North Korea, MacArthur believes him. And, and so he says, okay. And, it's, and, he, and he basically takes the gloves off, says, do what you need to do. And one of the first things they do is basically firebomb the city of Kanye a key supply point in North Korea and burn down about 60% of the of of city. And what will happen is they will start an incendiary campaign against North Korean cities very similar to what LeMay wanted to do early on. The problem is, is before they can get much through it, the Chinese armies come in in force and basically throw the UN out of, of uh, North Korea. Again, MacArthur takes a real rap for walking into a trap in North Korea. And yes, he is guilty of hubris and ignoring intelligence and other things. But he, he was propelled there by faith in his air power. And he admitted later, he admitted afterwards, even in the MacArthur hearings, there's a very telling part where he says, yes, I, I expected too much of my air power. Jacob Smart, who was, I, I remember he was like 92 years old, who I'll get to in a second here, was one of the key commanders in Korea, said that one of the problems was everybody expected too much of American air power. And the air guys knew it. The commanders in Washington knew it. But they said we were kind of hoisting our own petard. We had developed this aura of invincibility in order to get funding from Congress, in order to get steep support. And we weren't going to admit our weaknesses because the press would, would, would come after us and we might lose some of our funding. So they realized they had, inflated, inflate, they had created inflated expectations, but they weren't ready to deflate them 
until it was too late. And we've got to be careful about what we expect. And, and MacArthur was a victim of some of that. Now, he also, he continues with his campaign to attack North Korean cities. Even as the, once the Americans are pushed out of North Korea, one of the first things they do is mount a major campaign to bomb Pyongyang. You can see the bombs dropping here. Of course, what's the problem with the fire rate on Pyongyang in January? What's all this white stuff? Yeah, it's kind of tough to burn down a snow-covered city. So doesn't work real well. Uh, in the meantime, the war drags on. The air, air continues to be a key part of restoring uh, UN superiority and starting to move north, as well as the advent of this guy. This is Matthew Ridgway. Uh, he's actually uh, getting a briefing here about air operations. This is Earl Partridge, commander of the 5th Air Force. And this is April 1951. Ridgway's on a trip over there. This is... Uh, Frank Pace, Secretary of the Army. Uh, Pace, at the moment they're getting this briefing, there's a message being sent to Pace telling him to relieve Douglas MacArthur because the announcement's going to be made on the next day that the President is relieving Douglas MacArthur. But of course, you know the way those things always work. The communications center at Pusan that's supposed to get the message is broken. So the, the message never gets to MacArthur, never gets to Pace, and MacArthur finds out about his relief because one of his aides is listening to the radio. And the radio announces MacArthur's been released. Uh, Ridgeway takes over. Here he is in Tokyo, again with Pace, being interviewed by, uh, by reporters about taking from MacArthur's job. He writes in his memoirs, he was shocked to find how defenseless Japan was. And what happens in April 51 is not only is there a major Chinese offensive trying to push back south again, there's a massive buildup of Soviet air power in Manchuria. And there are submarines building up in Vladivostok. And Japan looks defenseless. And, it, and, it, and MacArthur also relieved there's a sense of vulnerability and the fact that maybe the communists would exploit this. And what happens in April 51 is for the first time in the war, nuclear weapons are deployed to the Far East. And they're sent to Guam. And they'll stay there through the rest of the war. So the evaluation of nuclear weapons before this basically said there's no reason to use them in Korea but with, with the threat that develops in April 51, they are deployed to Guam and they'll sit there for the rest of the war. So there are nukes in Guam if they are net, if needed to be deployed. Now, there's a couple exercises that are done to test them. There's one called Hudson Harbor that's been much misunderstood in the press. What Hudson Harbor shows is there are no good nuclear targets in Korea. There's just no, there's no real... The, the cities are all gone anyway. The armies are too dispersed and dug in. All you're going to do is give away secrets to the Soviets. The only reason to really use nukes is if we're about to get pushed out of Pusan, you've got to kind of save the perimeter. So until 1953, there are no really valid plans to use nuclear weapons in Korea, even though Ridgeway really would like to have some of the flexibility to use them if he thought he needed to. Uh, one of the big concerns is all the UN, remember I talked about the fact there are only a couple good improved airfields in Korea, and those airfields like this one uh, near Seoul are wingtip to wingtip F-86s. You know, we, 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 yeah, the, the, the Chinese had a, and the North Koreans had a sanctuary in China where we wouldn't bomb. They didn't go after our airfields either around Seoul, except with some night, they had a couple night bombers come in, old rickety wooden biplanes. But, but if, if the Chinese or the Russians had actually done a full-scale air assault on a Seoul area, they could have wiped out our F-86s in the area. But they never did it. So both sides had sanctuaries they exploited. 
Now, Ridgeway is faced with the problem beginning in June is when negotiations begin, when both sides decide we had enough fighting on the ground, we're going to start to negotiate. Then the question becomes, how do I use air power, which is the unique UN weapon, the, advantage, the asymmetric weapon of choice for the UN forces? How do I use air power to try to coerce the other side to go along with our negotiating position? Uh, and Ridgeway's, of course, Ridgeway's experience in Europe was he was with the 82nd, he commanded the 82nd Airborne Division, he commanded the 18th Airborne Corps. He's seen the power of American air power in Europe. And if you, if you follow the European campaign, you understand that one of the great success of American air power was the ability to cut off German supply lines. It really make it difficult for the Germans to move, move around in France and Germany. So Ridgeway has a great amount of faith that an interdiction campaign can really coerce the enemy into agreeing to our armistice terms. So a major armistice, so a major uh, interdiction campaign called Strangle is initiated. A lot of parts to it. First thing they want to do is basically destroy the North Korean rail net. And this is a, this is, this is, these are pictures of the main rail yard at Pyongyang. That's kind of a high level view. Here's a low level view. Shows the destroyed rail cars. So the first step is you want to destroy the rail lines so they can't move materials. And that what, then what you want to do is you want to force them to use trucks. And they have this neat little plan where they where they drop these they they drop these little tacks all over the roads in North Korea. And the idea is if you force them off the railroads, you force them on the roads, then we're going to puncture all their tires with these tacks. Of course, we're also bombing the roads and doing everything else. Uh, Another thing that we're doing, and for those of you who are familiar with the museum will recognize this picture, we're also dropping large amounts of napalm in areas we think are supply centers along these travel routes. Uh, Korea is the first war where we use a great amount of this new exploding napalm. Uh, yeah, the problem is, and as in all these situations, the enemy has a vote. And uh, there are certain drawbacks to this interdiction program why it's not going to work. Uh, number one is there's about 50,000 Chinese laborers whose only role in life is to fix holes in roads and railroads. So you bomb them during the day. We have no night capability, so then they come back at night and they fix everything. The next day it's back kind of the way it was. Uh, they also uh, were not as effective as we think we are. They have, you know, the enemy does things at night to move and they work around. They have workarounds that they hide and they have bridges that they keep underwater and they raise them up in the daytime, at nighttime, so they use them. They all kinds of things they do to kind of avoid our, our, our air power. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, where you're trying to do our, but night operations we do have, we're trying to use the, what is in, during Korea is called the B-26 invader during World War II was the A-26 invader. They're out there on the floor. You want to look at them sometime. A, a very capable aircraft for, 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 for forward firepower. 14 forward firing machine guns. Carries a lot of ordnance. Uh, but again, no night capability. I, I was talking with General Smart about what they try to do for night raids and he said it was a real eye-opener because they'd get up there and he said they usually have a, a, a searchlight aircraft and a bomber. And, and they'd kind of, kind of figure out their air, near air, there might be some any activity, and they would, then they'd try to put searchlights down there and find something, and then go back and bomb it. But it was just very unwieldy, very ineffective at night. 
So you really couldn't interdict the enemy without this night capability. Plus the fact that the war is stalemated. Uh, the enemy really doesn't need a whole lot of supplies in order to function in a stalemated situation. I mean, one of the staff officers looking at this said, you know, that if, if they get one truckload of mortar shells to the front every day, that's enough to handle all their needs. So there's just not a lot of, the interdiction campaign just isn't going to work. Uh, in the meantime, what, what happens is that life becomes pretty much untenable for the B-29s. Uh, you've got some dilemmas here. You know, the, the, the B-29 flies, you know, 250 miles an hour. You're trying to escort them with jets that are flying 600 miles an hour. I mean, it just, you can't keep up with them. The, uh, the MiGs and the Sabres look a lot alike. You know, they're both swept-wing aircraft. From a distance, they look the same. And we, we find out very quickly that it's not a good idea to try to do escort missions for F-86s with the B-29s because they'll, they'll shoot at them as quick as they'll shoot at a MiG. Uh, so you've got problems with coordination. And again, this is another one of those missions we forgot how to do. We weren't teaching how to do escort duties because nobody thought we'd ever have to do them anymore. So what they would try to do a lot of times is try to send the F-86s up to sweep areas clean before the B-29s went in. But what the MiGs would do is basically sit on the other side of the Alu and thumb their nose at us. And when the B-29s show up, they would dash across the Alu, shoot the B-29s, and fly back across. And what happens in October 1951, they shoot down enough B-29s that they basically, we give up. We say we're not going to use B-29s in the daylight anymore. And basically, the, that's it. The B-29s will not bomb in day, daylight again after, after October of 1951. Uh, they basically, the, the, North, the, the Chinese, the Russians, North Koreans have won that part of the air war. And what we move to is short-range... Or what's it? Shoran, short-range navigational radar, is what we use, and this is the the radar operator in the B-29 looking at his little Shoran scope and determining where to bomb. Now, the way Shoran worked is you had these ra these radio, they were basically uh, radio stations that broadcast along a certain band, and they would basically figure out where the target was. They would direct their beacons towards that target, and the the B, the basically, the B-29s would either fly along one of those beams until they hit the other beam, or else they'd kind of figure out where the intersection was. Bottom line is where the intersection was where they dropped their bombs. And actually, the, the circular error probable that they developed was 600 feet, which is pretty good for this, this era of bombing. That's better than we did in World War II. So they, they, they get very good with it. But, it's, but this is night bombing. It's, it's, uh, it's by usually by one or two B-29s at a time. Uh, there's a real crisis at this time in the B-29 community. And, and we were talking at dinner tonight about some of the problems they had with recalled reservists in World War II and in, Korea, in the Korean War. Where, a lot, where most of the crews come from, from Korea, they are recalled from, from, from World War II, especially for the B-29 crews. And what happens is, 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 and again, these people didn't know they were signed up for that when they were B-29 crewmen. And a lot of these people are surprised when they get this letter in the mail and say, by the way, Uncle Sam was calling you back to active duty. And oh, by the way, the records were incomplete. So some guy, guys were getting recalled. For instance, there's an example I found of one, one guy who was a B-29 navigator in World War II. He gets a letter from the War Department saying you're being recalled on active duty. He shows up in Korea, and they say you're now a radar operator. And by the way, he had one mission of overlap with his predecessor to learn how to use the radar before the other guy left. 
but what happens is, is there's a, a lot of dissatisfaction with these guys being called back to war. There are some people who volunteer to help but say, I'll volunteer as long as I don't get sent into combat again. And they all get sent to combat too. And what happens is, is there's a regulation passed in 1950 that's supposed to, to make it easier for commanders to recognize somebody who's been strained in flying. And it's called the fear of flying regulation. And what it says basically, if you have an individual who for some reason is under a lot of stress and, and seems to be reluctant to fly, you can pull them off flight duty or they can pull themselves off flight duty without prejudice until they think they're ready to fly again. And what happens is, is you have a, basically a wave of combat refusals through the B-29 crews. Over a thousand in the United States and even a few hundred in Korea. Where they say, oh, I'm afraid to fly today. Drives LeMay nuts. LeMay basically wants to castrate every one of them. Uh, he, uh, the, one that, the one that drives LeMay crazy is there's one example of a guy who goes up in front of one of these fear of flying boards and says, and brings his wife and says, you know, I'm not really afraid to fly, but my wife is afraid for me to fly. Oh, LeMay writes, you've got to read LeMay's papers on that. That's just a great... But, uh, but it is a crisis, and, and it, it really affects morale throughout the bomber crews. I mean, it's deadly business being a B-29 pilot or B-29 crew, and a lot of them don't want to be there. So what, what Vandenberg has to do is, one thing, they've got to stop the involuntary recalls. And what he does is start to, to rotate his, his B-29 crews out of Europe to Asia as well. And, and they basically get the six-month combat tour. And so they work to do six-month combat tours. All the SAC crews are getting combat experience in Korea, but it's not the kind of war they're supposed to fight. They're not dropping nukes. They're dropping in conventional bombs. They're going after small targets. They're not bombing cities. They've got to relearn the business. Uh, what LeMay also does is he, well, another key part of the armistice agreement, armistice negotiations they go on, is that the two key sticking points are the POW repatriation and bringing units back into Korea after the, um, how many units can be left in Korea once the armistice is signed. And there's one thing in there that says basically that you can keep the same number of aircraft in place that are in place in Korea when the armistice is signed. And remember, all the good airfields are around Seoul. So the North Koreans and Chinese are trying to build airfields in the north so they can bring in their, their aircraft to base them there so when the armistice is signed, they can keep them in the country. So the B-29s take this on as their mission to keep any new airfields from being built. And this is one. This is an airfield at Samcham. And I just this is this is this is shore-end night bombing at its best. If you, all those little dots there are all bomb craters. And this is the that's that's the main runway. So you can see what the B, this is with that shore-end radar navigation bombing. You can see they basically destroyed that runway. And also a lot of the revetments for the planes over here. You know, Smart told me in his interview that he thought that we'd gotten so good at this that he thought by, by 1953 the communists are not really serious about trying to put any planes on these airfields. He thinks they're just building the airfields to, just, to distract our B-29s. So we'll go bomb them and not bomb something else. Because it was such, such an effective operation. What LeMay does is he takes a lot of guys in his, his staff at SAC who haven't seen combat action. He sends them over to work with his B-29 crews. A lot of them are young reservists, you know, young guys being recalled. You know, the oldest is like 20, the old man is 25 or 26. And he sends couple, one, of his, one of his fighter jocks over. And, and I found these uh, 
these pictures in a file of Tom Powers at Syracuse University. Powers was LeMay's number, his right-hand guy at, at SAC, the model for Jack D. Ripper and Dr. Strangelove, uh, who had this particular excerpt from this colonel in his files. And these are pictures. This colonel sent these pictures back to LeMay's headquarters and says, here are some pictures of the guys I'm working with in these B-29 crews. And I'll, I'll, read you probably, I'll read you some of the captions. This one here is, what? Back up to the Alu again? This drooling picture over here says, nope, combat's not affecting me at all. <laughs> and uh, the one at the, uh, again, for those, those of you who are combat veterans can probably figure this, this, this middle one, this very angry looking one. What do I think of the mission planning? Well, I'll tell you all about it. And then this one over here, what that says down there, you're damn right they ain't keeping me out here for seven months. But I just thought that was an interesting set of pictures coming back from this colonel. The problem to get solved by 52. Uh, but it is a real dilemma with, within the Air Force. And there's, there's court martials. There's, there's a lot of problems trying to resolve this problem. But eventually it gets fixed basically with better personnel policy. But the Air Force is still faced with the problem of how we're going to win this war with air power. I mean, the Korean War is the first war, we try to resolve with air power alone, basically. I mean, the ground guys are restricted in what they can do. We're going to have to do this with air power. And, in, and what, we had, what we get is a bunch of new leadership. Key guy, this is Otto P. Whalen. Anybody know what he did in World War II? Who he served as as the air commander for? George Patton. He was George Patton's air commander in 19th TAC. Probably Patton, Patton's favorite guy in World War II. And every night they would sit down and put down a bottle of scotch and talk about the next day's air operations. Uh, Wayland is a, he's a, in some ways he's a tack, a tack wolf in Sachs Chief's clothing. He, he maintains interest in tactical air power from his days with Patton. And he is put in charge of the Far East Air Forces when Stratemeyer has a heart attack in 51. And Wayland is going to reinstill tactical air power and the essence of tactical air power into the Far East Air Forces. His right-hand man is director of operations. This is Jake Smart. Uh, he is, uh, worked for Cap Arnold, World War II, one of his idea guys. It's the guy who comes up with the idea for the raids on Ploesti, the, the famous oil raids into Romania. Gets shot down in 1944 and spends the last year in the war in a, in a prison camp. Comes out again, and by at this time, he becomes the, the number two guy under Wayland in, in the Far East Air Forces. And Smart decides it's time to come up with a smarter way to use air power. He takes a couple of smart colonels, sends them off and says, I want you to study this problem and come up with a better solution than interdiction for air power. And these two colonels come back and they say, we got it. We, we want to do something called air pressure. And this is the way they summarize the goal of this new, what we use for air power. In summary, finding lucrative targets in North Korea is not an easy task, but it is certainly not an insurmountable one. Finding targets for destruction is basically a problem of directing the available reconnaissance and intelligence effort toward that end. At present, it is not so directed. It is believed that once this concept of destruction is clearly stated, made known to all operations and intelligence agencies, targets can be found, developed, and successfully attacked. Thus, within present restrictions, the maximum pressure can be brought to bear on communist forces. The idea is, if we destroy, we're going to put pressure on the leaders by destroying key systems, key elements 
of their military power that we can get within the theater. Now, part of the problem is they're not really sure who they're trying to influence, Moscow, Beijing, or Pyongyang. They don't really know who's calling the shots. But they feel if they can cause enough destruction in key target systems, they can make them respond. They have, they have an advantage in that Ridgeway is replaced. Ridgeway goes off to command NATO, and he's replaced by Mark Clark right here, General Mark Clark. Mark Clark was in Italy where interdiction didn't work real well, doesn't have much faith in interdiction, and is willing to listen to new ideas. This is James Van Fleet, who takes over 8th Army. Uh, Van Fleet's big concern is an artillery shortage, and he wants close air support. And he will be, he and the Air Force have some rocky relationships throughout the rest of the war, because Van Fleet is always asking for more close air support. But Clark gives permission for this new campaign, this new destruction campaign. The first target system picked out are hydroelectric plants. The North Korean hydroelectric plants, mostly along the Yalu, especially the big dam at Suiho, but there are all kinds of other systems. This target system had not been bombed before because our allies were real nervous about it. They considered it a dual-use target more suited for civilian use than military. So there was a lot of nervousness that that would be an, an, an expansion of the war that might cause a reaction to the Chinese and the Russians. Clark gets approval from the Joint Chiefs to bomb it, and the Air Force picks up the idea, how can we take down the hydroelectric system? Of course, what does any good air staff do when you're trying to talk about it, get a new idea about air power to do a deal with a target system? You find a movie about it. So if you're going to try to bomb dams in North Korea, what movie are you going to watch? The Dam Busters. Exactly right. That's the movie they get. And Smart and his staff sit around. They watch the movie, The Dam Busters. And it comes to the end and they say, we can't do that. We don't have any bombers like that. We don't have any bombs like that. We can't do that. So what they realize is they're going to have to bomb the penstocks and power transformers. So that's what they do. And they get out and they, they and that's typical of destruction. They blow up all the power systems to transform all the, the dam uh, hydroelectricity. And they take down the hydroelectric system. Uh, it was great for the POWs in North Korea because they said they didn't have to watch another propaganda movie for months. It made Manchuria dark. But the main impact wasn't in Beijing, Moscow, or Pyongyang. It was in London, where Churchill's government almost falls and the British go into a panic they were about to start World War III. And, you know, the, the Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, has got to go apologize to the Brits, and we have to let the Brits appoint a deputy to Clark. And, and, and he, they get real nervous about the expansion of the war. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to cause any reaction. Next thing we go after, a, we decide we're going to bomb some key supply centers in North Korea. Supply center means any standing building. <laughs> and that's what we do. We basically knock down every structure in North Korea. And, and we, drop, we drop leaflets like this one, which basically say, you know, we know, we know the en there's enemy troops around. We know they're using the areas for storage. We know they've got factories there. We're going to bomb them, run away, which is the same that LeMay did in, in, in Japan. Uh, you know who gets us to stop dropping these? The U.S. State Department. The U.S. State Department says, if you drop these leaflets, it makes us look like this is a terror campaign. So they, they quit dropping the leaflets, but they keep doing the bombing. That's okay. The State Department doesn't have any problem with the bombing, just for the fact that we're dropping the leaflets before we bomb. So, oh well. The bottom line is it continues, and I'll talk a little about the damage that results in the end. This is the, uh, 
It probably actually is that the Air Force doesn't mind. This is a typical leaflet mission. <laughs> you know, they, they pop open that door and you try to stuff the leaflets out. But this is not one of the more popular jobs in the Air Force at this time. Uh, what the final target system we've decided upon, and which happens in May of 1953, very controversial system is North Korean irrigation dams. The Air Force planners come up with this, see this as an attack on a North Korean rice crop. Clark will not approve, Clark and Wayland, well, Wayland especially, will not approve that. He said, that's going too far. We're not going to destroy the rice crop. So the planners go back and they scratch their heads and they say, aha. And they tell, then they go back to Wayland and they say, look, we found the fact that, that there are key rail lines that run south of these dams. If we blow up the dams, we'll wash out the rail lines, and it'll, 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 that'll, we'll get to the destruction campaign that way. So Wayland approves those particular raids. Here's an example of what it looks like. Uh, that B line down here, this is the key rail line that goes to Pyongyang. That's the hole blown in the, in the Taksan Dam, and that's the water flowing down to cut the rail line. Now, what it doesn't note is the fact that 25 miles this way is Pyongyang, and the water floods Pyongyang as well, the North Korean capital. Uh, here's another example right here at the Chasan Dam, where we blow a 20-foot gap, and that water also washes through the streets of Pyongyang. It also wipes out about 27 North Korean villages and wipes out a whole bunch of the rice crop. Uh, North Koreans will scream bloody murder, but nobody seems to care by that time. By that time, everybody's kind of deaf to North Korean complaints. But that doesn't have much impact because the North Koreans realize that all we've got to do is lower the water level in these reservoirs and build multiple rows of dams, and they basically negate the policy. So we have a couple of good strikes, but then they basically solve it. Now, one thing that's happening, though, in these raids in 50, on, the, on the hydroelectric dams and on the, on the irrigation dams is we've had a change in the way air power operates. These key raids are not being delivered by B-29s anymore. They're being delivered by these guys, F-84 Thunderjet fighter bombers. So all of a sudden, this key bombing mission has gone away from these propeller-driven larger jets, larger bombers, and gone to these smaller jet fighter bombers. This is also our first... Uh, nuclear fighter bombers. We develop, also developed small nukes that be carried by the F-84s. So this is a revolutionary aircraft. It doesn't get enough credit. We've got a couple of them out there. They're out in the display as well. Uh, but it's really a transformation in the way air power is being conducted. And this is an example of an F-84 strike dropping napalm on enemy position. Again, very, very effective. Much better close air support than the, F the, the F-80s or the F-51s were, really. Very good close air support aircraft. Now, what also happens, of course, in 53 is the election, Dwight Eisenhower becomes president. And Eisenhower thought that his threats to expand the war would finally get the, the North Koreans, Chinese, and Russians to agree to the armistice. Best evidence is his warnings never got there, uh, that it really is because Stalin dies, there are riots in Eastern Europe, China's concerned about getting Taiwan back. They're tired of the beating American air power is giving them on the ground and the destruction of North Korea. But it's not because of the nuclear threat. Though there are plans to do that. Frustration is growing. Clark comes up with a plan called Op Plan 852 that if the armistice talks break down, 
We would have sent a couple armored divisions to Korea for a drive on Pyongyang, would have made a landing at Wonsan to cut across the short part of the peninsula, and also would have executed a nuclear campaign against North Korea and China that would have involved dropping between 480 and 640 nuclear weapons. And the day the armistice is being signed, in July, at a meeting of the NSC, that plan is put into that, that plan is ready to be executed because nobody trusts the, the, the communists to follow through. So if the communists had violated the armistice in the month or so after July 1953 when they signed it, Op Plan 852 would have gone into effect with hell to pay. I mean, I'm not sure how we could deliver all those nukes, but that's the planning. For between 480 and 600 and some nukes. Uh, would have devastated that area and would have cost us a lot of B-29 crews as well. What happens even without those nukes, though, is the, almost a complete and utter destruction of North Korea. Uh, every major, uh, 18 of 22 major cities are more than 50% destroyed. Most Koreans are living in, in, uh, in caves and hovels. Uh, there are some South, some South Asia experts who say the main reason for the North Korean nuclear program today is to prevent this. This is a typical North Korean village. The North Koreans remember this. And their idea is the only way we can deter American air power from doing this to us again is by having some kind of a threat that keeps America away. Now, the impact of the war has, diff has, a, has a different effect than the United States. The uh, Air Force comes away convinced that the dam raids and air pressure worked. And the reason that the, the enemy finally gave up was because we finally figured out a way to punish them enough. The, every service sees nukes as the future. The Navy wants its own nukes. The Navy could get nuclear aircraft to put in aircraft carriers. They're eventually going to get nuclear submarines and nuclear missiles. Everybody wants nukes. Even the Army develops the pentomic cannon, this great weapon called the Davy Crockett. Anybody ever see a Davy Crockett? Davy Crockett was a nuclear mortar. The blast radius of the weapon was larger than the range. Think about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're supposed to, the instructions were to dig in real well <laughs> before you fired it. Uh, but everybody goes to nukes. The, uh, the, the Army starts to fool around with the Pentomic Division. Whalen goes from being commander in Korea to being commander of the Tactical Air Command. And the Tactical Air Command becomes very robust, and he develops something called the Composite Air Strike Force, which is actually a precursor to the Aerial Expeditionary Forces we come up with later. I mean, he develops these these packets of air power that can be transmitted all over the world for contingencies that are very, they're, they become a key element of the, of the Lebanon crisis in 1958. The, the Air Force develops this, this ability to, to send tactical air power all over the world. The problem is, even TAC gets consumed by nuclear weapons. And in order to get more funding and more robust force structure, it's Whalen and his, and his successors strike a a Faustian bargain with the nuclear Mephistopheles, and, and they get their own nuclear bombers. And so we go into Vietnam with the F-105 Thunder Chief, which, has, which is designed to do one thing, drop nuclear bombs on, on, on Russian airfields in Europe. And we end up going into Vietnam, try to make that into an air interceptor and a close air support aircraft, very similar to what happened in Korea. In fact, the problem is, is Vietnam is, a, is Korea all over again. We forget everything from Korea before Vietnam. You know, it's, uh, the, the, uh, there are studies, Partridge, the, who was commander of 5th Air Force during the war, 
Uh, we've got an oral interview at my Military History Institute he does in the 60s where he says, I'm getting these reports back from Vietnam that we're, we're not only making all the same mistakes we made in Korea, we've found a whole bunch of new ones to make. And, and we're having to relearn everything all over again. You've got the same problems where you can't get any joint command and control. In Korea, there's so much acrimony between the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines that the only way they can do command and control is they basically cut the country up into pieces and say, Air Force, you take this piece, Navy, you take this piece. So we don't have to worry about any kind of coordination. Uh, same thing happens in Vietnam again. Uh, I mean, joint operations are, are they're just really not joint in most cases. Uh, we've got to relearn that again in Vietnam. There, we've got the wrong technology in Vietnam. We've got the wrong doctrine in Vietnam. Uh, after Korea, there's a, the, the, the line in, in, in Air Force doctrine is that preparing for general war means we'll be ready for any, any other contingency. And unfortunately, this is a lesson that all the services have continued to learn all the way through Iraq, that if you're prepared for conventional war, that doesn't mean you're ready for all these other conflicts as well. And, and the point, one of the reasons I want to talk about Korea tonight in this environment is because the key to, war, to modern warfare is learning and adapting. And the Air Force has had, has had a great history of that. And the problem is, and it'll be the same problem after Iraq and Afghanistan, is how do we avoid forgetting again? 